Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We turn the attention now, unlike those debates, to policy, Tom Keen, and we turn to Bloomberg's Michael McKee for more. Hey, Mike. Good morning, John. And we are joined this morning by Thomas Barkin. He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. And we welcome you to Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. And I will tell you that I will not talk over you or, or insult you this morning. Uh, but one of, the, one of the questions that is, um, well, sometimes asked in Washington these days, but always on Wall Street is, has the economy started to slow in the latter half of the summer going into the fall? From your perch in Richmond, what do you see? Well, the economy took a deep dive, as you know, uh, and it did come back quickly when we opened things up. But naturally, you would expect to see that recovery be a little more gradual. Where I see the real challenge now is getting the last 5% of Americans back into the workforce. And that's where I've got my focus. Well, is that going to happen? What are CEOs, uh, business leaders telling you about their plans to hire and to invest, to spend more money? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty starting, of course, with the virus, but also what the demand picture is going to look like next year. And in that context, I do think companies are streamlining, um, taking the last 5 or 10% um, and finding those efficiencies. Uh, I am starting to hear, though, in the last uh, month or so, some amount of pivoting to tomorrow. And what I mean by that is, OK, uh, we're going to get this behind us. Let's now talk about where we go uh, from here. So I do think they've streamlined, but I'm at least hopeful that as we get into next year, you're going to see them uh, starting to grow again. Do we see growth, uh, significant growth in the coming year, do you think? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, you've got a significant drop. And so we're going to grow out of that significant drop. I think you'll see a very strong uh, third quarter, for example. But even going into next year, I think part of the legacy of rounding over the comps we have from this year is you'll you'll see uh, growth numbers that look that look strong. Um, I look at more level than growth rates, and so I do think then the question is going to be what do we look like year over year? And I still think you know by the end of the fourth quarter this year we'll still be down year over year, and it'll be hard to get back to where we were until sometime around the end of next year. Well, is your forecast assuming we get a fiscal stimulus package? What happens if we don't? Well, I, I don't try to assume uh, anything in terms of what happens uh, in Washington one way or the other. So, um, you know, they're talking and I think uh, we'll let them figure out whether there's going to be a stimulus package. If there isn't one in the short term, obviously, uh, there's some uh, people down in their luck who are going to get less support. Uh, than they'd otherwise uh, need. Uh, I'm more focused on some of the long-term uh, issues or maybe even medium-term issues. Uh, we have a lot of people who used to be you know, waiters or work in an amusement park um, who now need new jobs. And their classic next job would have been uh, working you know, at a retailer or maybe working uh, uh, at another restaurant. If those places aren't hiring, how do we get them redeployed? And issues of job retraining, yeah, issues of getting Pell Grants and getting them uh, funded. Those are the kinds of things I think that are uh, important if we're going to bring the economy all the way back. Well, another major issue, and you have one of America's biggest banks in your district, that is uh, whether or not uh, the economy can withstand as forbearance comes to an end and we see rising business debts and increased defaults, particularly for commercial real estate. Uh, how do you see that playing out? 
Well, I do think this fiscal stimulus that we've done has been quite helpful uh, to the financial industry. We uh, um, there are people who have been down on their luck who have gotten uh, stimulus payments, and you actually see credit card outstandings down. You have some small businesses that would have gone under that got PPP money. Uh, you've got bigger industries like airlines uh, that might have been much more significantly challenged if they hadn't gotten uh, the money they've gotten. And I think so far, uh, knock on wood, uh, what at least I'm seeing from the banks is still pretty healthy. What about in terms of their loans and lending, though? Uh, there have been concerns expressed that particularly in commercial real estate, you're going to have a wave of defaults. I think there will be challenges in commercial real estate, particularly on the uh, retail side, uh, as you could imagine. Um, but then the question is just, are those defaults going to overwhelm uh, the capital of the system? And my sense is there's been a lot of capital building in the last 10 years, and the exposures there compared to the capital in the system uh, don't seem to compare. If the economy is slowing, if uh, things do turn south, is there anything more the Fed can do, or is it pretty much up to the folks in Washington now? Well, uh, we have done a lot, and I like to think, as I learned in uh, college, that there's fiscal and there's monetary, and you want to pull both of them uh, as strongly as you can. Um, I'd say in this particular crisis, you could put public health on that list. And I think all three of those are levers we'll want to pull uh, as hard as we can. And the Fed has done a lot. There's, of course, still more we could either do additionally or continue to do. Uh, but I'm actually more hopeful on where we're headed next year. And I'm hopeful that what we've done and also uh, fiscal and the public health authorities will put us in a much better place. Well, are you seeing demand for credit out there? Uh, there is some demand for credit. Certainly auto credit uh, has been very strong. Mortgage credit uh, has been very strong. Uh, on the business side, I do think uh, people took down their lines uh, in March and April. They've you know, now repaid those. And I'm not seeing quite as much demand on the business side, in part because uh, they spend most of the year uh, pretty with pretty strong cash positions. One of the big questions about lending is over the Main Street lending program that the Fed runs. You issued a special senior loan officer survey last night that had banks saying overly restrictive terms for borrowers are discouraging them from approving more loans. And others cited the unattractive terms for lenders for not even making loans at all, not offering them. What do you do about that? Well, I haven't seen that uh, survey, um, but we designed the Main Street Lending Facility to play a particular role. Um, it may be, it'll be a bigger role uh, if, you know, bad news happens and the economy goes south. But uh, if there are loans coming into banks, um, they get the option of whether to keep them or whether to sell 95% of them off of, into our Main Street facility. Um, and I'm not sure it's bad news if they're making those loans and, and keeping them. All right. Uh, the Fed in June banned buybacks by banks and capped their dividends into the third quarter. Should that ban and cap be extended? Big debate right now. Well, I think we've put in place a, um, a protocol that allows us to have um, a deep investigation into the quality of the capital levels of the various uh, banks. And, and my view is we ought to uh, do whatever we do on a bank by bank basis. Uh, and those banks that uh, need to conserve capital, ought to be conserving capital, and those banks that have sufficient capital uh, ought to be free to distribute it. All right, I got to ask you uh, about the new framework and your view that things are going to pick up in the economy going forward. Does that mean inflation is going to pick up as well? Uh, well, there may well be some inflation, particularly uh, in the near term, if demand comes back stronger than people think at a time where supply chains are uh, stretched. But you know, our framework is not around any particular month or quarter's inflation. It's much more around uh, 
uh, where are we headed in long-term uh, inflation expectations? And my hope is that those will start to creep up uh, back toward our 2% target. Well, the new policy is that, of course, appropriate monetary policy, in your words, will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. Uh, for Tom Barkin, what does moderately mean and how far above 2%? Well, let's see when we get there. But I think uh, I gave a speech, uh, Mike, you were there in Idaho a year ago, where I said I'm very supportive of a range around 2% and a moderate range around 2%, um, whether that's one and a half to two and a half or one to three, I think I said is uh, I'm not uh, that focused on the difference between them. But that's something close to, uh, or as somebody put, I think recently, the word moderate means moderate. Uh, yeah, that somebody uh, was the chairman who also took pains to say over and over in his news conference that the new guidance is strong and powerful, which does not seem to be the read on Wall Street. Uh, why do you think there's a disconnect there? Oh, I don't know if there is a disconnect. The the analysis on Wall Street basically is that you can move interest rates, but you're not going to have much impact on the economy unless uh, demand for credit picks up, unless something is done out of uh, Capitol Hill. Well, I, I just say there's a difference between looking backwards and looking uh, forwards. I think uh, for the last six months, uh, we've gone pretty strong in terms of what we can do to support uh, the economy. And now we're looking forward over the next uh, year or two. Um, I think the forward guidance is. Uh, particularly powerful as the economy comes back, as I think it's uh, going to. And so uh, if you do see uh, a strength in the economy, if you do see modest overshoots of inflation, I think uh, we're going to be having a different conversation. One of the other things that people are watching in terms of overshoots is the equity markets. Uh, lower for longer, raising financial stability concerns, particularly with P.E. ratios getting to where they are. Are you worried at all that uh, your money that you're putting into the economy may be ending up in the wrong place, stimulating uh, equity acquisition and share buybacks and things like that instead of stimulating growth? Well, I'm not a believer that... Uh you know, lower for longer means zero forever. I do think uh, I want to normalize uh, at some point, and I want to normalize in part as a uh, response to a healthy uh, economy. So I watch, I don't really watch the equity markets as much as I watch leverage levels. And the thing I would be nervous about is if you start seeing uh, leverage in particular sectors that uh, made you concerned. I, I don't think that's where we are yet. You're not seeing dangerous uh, changes in borrowing patterns then? Well, actually, credit card outstandings are down, um, uh, and you know, as I said before, you know, the pipelines on the business side aren't uh, overwhelming the the bank. So I, I don't think at this moment in time that's what you're saying. But of course, when you do have low rates, that's one of the things you want to watch. Um, but again, I, I think at this point the banks are tightening standards, not the other way around. And so I don't really see that as uh, today's issue. Right, uh, before I let you go, I got to ask you, because I know this is an area of interest for you. Has the financial crisis we're undergoing now changed the dynamic for the economy in terms of inequality? A lot of talk these days about a K-shaped recovery. Well, uh, if you look at the last uh, 30 or 40 years, the mega story has been uh, the decline in middle income jobs and the growth of both the high end jobs and those uh, at the low end. And the sad part about this crisis is those low-end jobs, uh, which are disproportionately um, low-income personal service, personal contact workers, um, you know, uh, waiters, amusement parks, uh, um, you know, retail folks, uh, those are the jobs that have been hit the hardest. 
And I do worry uh, that that group of people who have been brought in off the sidelines over the last uh, five or 10 years of a healthy economy are now displaced and their next best job is also displaced. And so this question of, you know, what are the things we can do to help those people re-engage in the workforce and rebuild their careers uh, into some of the places perhaps that are, you know, hotter, whether they be, you know, healthcare or manufacturing or, or construction or, or whatever, that's a pretty important uh, thing for us to work on. And if we don't do that, I do worry about what that's going to do for inequality. Tom Barkin, Richmond Fed President, thank you very much for joining us this morning here on Bloomberg. I'm pleased to say, joining us now, Lisa Shallot, Morgan Stanley, CIO. Lisa, great to catch up with you. You're calling this a policymaker's correction. What is a policymaker's correction? Well, look, I mean, I think that as we know, uh, it's really been the policymakers' Herculean efforts uh, over the last six months. Uh, that are unprecedented, that have allowed us to rebound and retrace and, and even, uh, you know, by September 2nd, hit new, fresh, all-time highs in the S&P 500. Uh, but I think that they also, you know, set the bar very, very high, and, and uh, many investors expected them to continue to follow through. And I think as, uh, you know, the, the, the days of September wore on, it became very clear uh, that some of the gifts that we were given in March, April, and May uh, were perhaps going to be a little bit tougher to procure. And that's really around the certainty of, of what policy is. And so, you know, we've talked about kind of three things. Um, you know, we've talked about the fact that, that we're, we're quite frankly shocked at, that, that the market isn't more tumultuous given uh, what looks like could potentially not just be a delay in the CARES uh, act, but but even um, you know uh, a uh, materially reduced and watered down version of it, when so many people in the June and July timeframe were saying, oh yeah, we're definitely going to get another trillion trillion and a half dollars, so, um, and it, it, that's not forthcoming. And to your point that that you all were talking about, for unemployed, uh, for states, municipalities who've dealt with COVID, for uh, you know, many of the small businesses that are now, you know, beginning to, to have to, uh, you know, make decisions about shuttering. Um, this stimulus matters, and it matters a lot. Um, and it, it was in most people's forecasts. Lisa, push this forward. Does this mean, in your view, the market needs to sell off further in order to adequately reflect the lack of additional fiscal support from Washington? Uh, yeah. So, so look, we've, we've had this pullback from, uh, you know, 7, 8% from extraordinary highs reached on September 2nd. Um, you know, our thought was that, you know, you could get something, you know, much closer to a 10 to 15% zip code from those levels, you know, potentially, you know, with 3,100 being floor. Um, uh, so, so yes, we do see that, that there's downside to this market. So CARES was, was one of the, the disappointment on, on the timing of CARES and potentially the size of CARES uh, is the first thing. The second thing, as we know, um, has been, you know, kind of where the Fed is and, and some of the ambiguity in their, in their guidance. Um, I think, you know, clearly in, at Jackson Hole, uh, you know, Chairman Powell fired a big bazooka, and, and you know, you all have been been talking about that very thoroughly uh, over the last month. How this is, you know, the end of 40 years of, of Volcker ideology, and and you know, where we're no longer going to fight 
to keep inflation below 2%. We're going to somehow aim for something that average inflation targeting. Uh, but the Fed has not yet really specified how we're going to measure that over what time period, using what metrics. I think the market is frustrated about that because how do you really try to guess at what inflation or inflation expectations are going to do and therefore right. what, what might trigger a hike? Lisa, you got uh, one? Oh, excuse me, Lisa. Ahead, just uh, this is uh, good morning, and and I, I'm just fired up about this. Look, Lisa, you've got the best bio on Wall Street. You start off with your protest leftists burning a buildings at Brown University <laughs> a million years ago, and now you're working for James Gorman on Wall Street. Lisa, it really works. That emotion is out there right now. We certainly saw that emotion last night. How will the C officers of all our corporations and adapt and adjust to what they witnessed last night? Do they make plans? Do they sit back? Do they cut CapEx by half? Or do they go out and say, hey, there's optimism here. Let's go. Well, I, I don't know that they that that there was any optimism to be seen. Look, you know, without getting into the politics of it, you know, my observation is, and I think, you know, some of the folks said it this morning on, on some of the other, uh, you know, news outlets, you know, that the dignity and democracy are the, are the things that took a big hit last night, right? And so I think from that perspective, you know, if I'm sitting in the C-suite uh, and, and talking about what does this all mean, you know, I think it's, it's preparing uh, your teams for the fact that there could be material uncertainty uh, you know, between November and, and January. Um, and that's volatility in yeah. markets, and it's potentially, you know, indecision by your clients, customers, um, uh, partners in, 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 in the economy. And so um, that's what I'd be talking about. Lisa, always great to catch up with you and the team at Morgan Stanley. Lisa Shannon there, Morgan Stanley CIO. We are privileged at Bloomberg Surveillance for radio, for television worldwide, to bring you a lot of fancy people. I don't mean fancy meals, fancy dinners. I'm talking fancy economics, fancy politics, lots of fancy degrees. None of that matters. If you're a kid out of Lyon and you're a chef and you build a food restaurant empire in this pandemic, what you're observing really, really matters. This is without question our most important interview of the day for Small Business America and those trying to survive this pandemic. He is Daniel Balud. You know him from his restaurants, uh, and he joins us this morning. What are you going to do, sir? Good morning, and then, good morning. Wonderful to have you with us. What are you going to do in the next 30 days to keep your team employed, to keep going forward, and to avoid the reality of this pandemic in New York City? Uh, we are getting ready for tonight for the opening inside for 25%. Of course, that 25% occupancy is unsustainable when it comes to the economic. It's un unsustainable for any business, and some of them, not, uh, they, they are not able to reopen, period. Uh, but we are, I decided to transform the restaurant into sort of a... Uh, I miss going in the south of France this summer and I go every year and I say, well, maybe I should bring a glimpse of the south of France. So of course, it always starts with the food, but we also put up a decor. A young architect and artist, uh, Stephanie Gotto, helped me uh, set up a, a decor. I raised a little bit of money with sponsors to make sure that, you know, my mm -hmm. priority was to protect my staff and to be able to bring back more staff. 
From a business standpoint, is it more efficacious to receive assistance from the government and wait for the vaccine, or is it better to struggle forward with this limited occupancy? I didn't really think of the first. I went for the second, and we have been struggling. It has not been easy. Uh, we lost a lot of staff, and we are, we, but I'm very positive in a sense that having started early, by doing a lot of initiatives from doing charity meals uh, with Food First Foundation and uh, SL Green to uh, opening uh, two of our restaurants in New York to take one of our restaurant, Cafe Boulou, to the countryside. Uh, I have brought almost uh, 35 percent uh, of my staff. And I think I am I'm very proud of that. And that's not mean the economy are beautiful, but at least we are protecting the business and the jobs, yes. So, uh, Chef Balud, as you reopen at 25% capacity, there is a lot of discussion about the state of New York City, people moving out, clients not taking their business uh, members out for dinner. Are the clients still there for you to eventually reopen to the same degree that you once were? Uh, we have so many regular customers who say, please let me know when we open inside. What we want is our customer to be very disciplined very careful and we want ourselves i mean of course we train our staff our staff and uh our team to be also very careful and very disciplined with the process uh, uh we have also made alteration to our hvac we have uh done of course many different steps to ensure that uh safety come first of course and also for our staff as well we have a regular checkup all the time with our staff, and we want to make sure that guests and uh, guests and employees uh, feel very safe to be uh, inside. And I think that's the case of every restaurateur today. They try to really be uh, on par with their responsibility yeah. of opening inside. Daniel, before we let you go, forgive me for getting a little bit sentimental, but I grew up in this industry. I watched my father run several restaurants and know how tough it is. But I also know what it means to people who work in this industry as well. It's a sanctuary for people down on their luck. It's where people go when they've lost a job. It's where people go to get the first job. And for young aspiring chefs in their teenage years right now, chef, I'm just wondering what's the message for them as they want to get on the chef's side of the pass? What do you say to them right now as they look around and see our world being decimated? Now, people who love the hospitality, the restaurant business, cooking and, and service, I think they should try to find a job at any level. It don't matter what type of restaurant it is or what type of business. I think it's important to have experience right now and to be hopeful and positive because I think we will get out of this pandemic and we will be stronger and we certainly will have learned a lot through it. But I am um, my my uh, my message is to stay positive and try to keep learning in any which way they can about their profession, their cooking. I mean, choosing to be a chef is it shouldn't be a very expensive proposition to go to uh, always to go to school. You can directly apply into a restaurant and start cooking as well. Chef, fantastic to catch up with you today. Come back soon. Chef Daniel Balud there on the situation in Thank New York you. City and beyond. Tom Keen, this is so, so tough for so many people in this industry right now. And I think we always forget <clears throat> the other side yeah. of the industry. For many people, this is where they turn to get a job.
when they're really desperate for a job. And this time around, when you hear about those layoffs at the likes of the Walt Disney Company, Tom, those jobs won't be there to fall back on in the way that they used to be. Right now, Noriel Rabini with us, joining from Israel today with New York University and, of course, NorielToday.com. Noriel, every administration has its own character and, indeed, I'll use the word respectfully, dysfunctions as well. You observed the debate last night. How do we get forward on policy, whomever wins this November election? But the major problem is we are not going to know on November 3rd who won. Because the markets are down in Europe and the U.S. future are down because people are realizing that election night is going to become election weeks or weeks or maybe months if it's up to Trump. Last night was the ugliest debate ever. And the president behaved like a bully interrupting and attacking both Biden and the moderator. I mean, from the point of view of the markets, and that's why they're going to go further down, the U.S. right now looks like a banana republic. Is run by a wannabe caudillo or dictator who's literally planning an institutional coup. He said that mail-in ballots are going to be a fraud and he's going to claim against them. He said he's not going to have an orderly transition. He told these militia white supremacists that are well armed, right. stand by. He's going to stack the Supreme Court. He's going to use the Insurrection Act and he's telling the bunch of mm. cities already anarchists. This is the beginning of civil unrest violence, if not civil war. Well, this is going to be the okay. ugliest election ever. We're not going to know who won on election night. That's why the markets are down. No, In the case of Gore versus Bush, the market was down okay. 7%. This time around, is going to be much worse. Noriel, your heritage here is Jeff Sachs at Harvard, working with Secretary Geithner, working with Lawrence Summers as well, and then time in the Clinton administration. I think we understand where you fit into the political landscape. The fact is the president of the United States represents a large body of America who has not seen economic growth. Do you detect a Democratic Party plan, whether the middle ground is espoused by Vice President Biden last night or by, as Mr. Trump calls them, the radical left. I think that the plans of Biden are going to be quite moderate and centrist if progressive. First of all, he's a centrist. Secondly, has chosen another centrist as a running mate. Third of all, the median senator Democrat, if the Democrats win the Senate, is more moderate than the left of the party. So radical things like Medicare for all and no private plans and the Green New Deal are not going to pass. And he has a plan. He has a plan for a massive fiscal stimulus that we need to pay for it by raising moderately taxes on corporates from 21 to 28 percent reducing loopholes so we're not going to have runaway budget deficits, investing in infrastructure, investing in renewables, investing into increasing minimum wages and incomes for workers so there is more consumption growth. And the markets, until August, when Biden was at the peak of his polls, were actually going higher. That means that markets do realize that actually his polls are going to lead to stronger economic growth and any hit on profits and earnings coming from slightly higher taxes on the corporate sector are going to be counterbalanced by a stimulus going to lead to stronger economic growth. So net, I think the markets are quite calm about the prospects of Biden winning or even a sweep. But uh, Nuriel, what's priced in the markets right now? I mean, how close will this election be? 
Well, first of all, as I pointed out, the correction occurred in September. It's not just the U.S. election risk, but what's happening with the new cases, with the worry about the third wave, with the risk of a fiscal cliff, with the economy now stalling and so on and so on. But now, in the last few days and what has happened overnight, I think that people are going to start realizing that the U.S. electoral risks are severe. If you look at the VIX, the VIX for November and December, the future one, is much higher than it is right now. Options on various types of effects trading are suggesting people trying to hedge those things going into November and December. So certainly investors are signaling that they're worried about a long, ugly, contested election and they're starting to take protection against it. Uh, what's the number one risk, Nouriel, in the next five to six months? Is it a policy mistake? Is it no stimulus? Is it the U.S. elections or is it Brexit? Well, in my view, it's going to be initially a U.S. election because most likely we're not going to know who is the winner. It's going to be contested for weeks, if not for months. You could have a 10 percent correction just because of that. If you have a very severe, protracted, ugly and contested situation, I think that Brexit matters for the U.K. and for Europe. That's another risk. But the other risk is that, unfortunately, the second wave is not stopping. And we're going into fall and winter where everybody knows it's going to yeah. be a third wave. And the scientists are saying we're not going to get the well, real safe and effective vaccine by the spring of next year. That's a risk to the economy and to the market as well. Nora Robini, thank you so much with New York University and NoraLToday.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.